This podcast is supported by Understood Explains. As parents, we are often having to figure out things as we go, and that is very true for our children's education. And to help you out, I want to tell you about a podcast called Understood Explains. This season is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Juliana Ortube, and she discusses all the things you'd want to know about individual education plans, or IEPs, what they are, why they're needed, who benefits from them, and what to expect when you have meetings with teachers. I could have really used this podcast when my son had an IEP for speech when he was six. I was overwhelmed trying to understand the process and what everything meant. The episode on Understood Explains, Does My Child Need an IEP?, was the kind of info that would have really helped me get the most out of the educational support of the IEP for my son. And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Welcome to Mom in Mind. I'm perinatal psychologist and host, Dr. Kat. There's more to the story than just postpartum depression. And this podcast aims to share it all from personal stories and lived experience to experts who break down the ups and downs of life from getting pregnant, pregnancy, perinatal loss, and postpartum adjustment to parenthood. While this is not psychotherapy or medical advice, it is all of the stuff you ever wanted to know about mental health and new parenthood. Welcome back to Mom in Mind. I'm your host, Dr. Kat. On our episode today, we are getting into sensory overload and overstimulation. And our guest, Holly Peretz, who is a pediatric occupational therapist, is going to share with us what she understands about overstimulation and how we can better understand what is going on for us and within us when we're feeling overstimulated. And she also gives some really great and useful tips on how to start managing some of that overload. Holly has over 14 years of experience working with children and parents as a therapist and parent educator, and she supports parents and clinicians in creating a childhood that bakes in the science of what makes toddlers thrive in this critical period of development. She is also the hostess of the annual Toddler Play Conference and the Thriving in the First Year Summit. I know so many of us can really relate to this feeling of being overstimulated and um, having a lot to deal with in any given time But what I love about what Holly shares with us is the why some of that is happening. And it gives some insight, which I think can really be helpful in understanding how to be more supportive to ourselves. So let's meet Holly. Welcome, Holly. Thank you so much for being here. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited for our conversation today because I know from the parents and clients that I meet with, especially those who have little ones who need a little extra support, how important occupational therapy is for all of them. And I also know that not everybody knows exactly what happens in occupational therapy. So I'm happy to get into some of that with you as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think I'll admit that it took me about a year of actually studying occupational therapy to actually understand (laughs) what it is. And that's kind of the big joke of occupational therapy because it's a very dynamic profession and we work in a lot of different contexts. 
So it's kind of understanding what occupational therapy means in each of these. How I like to describe it to people is like, when you think of a physical therapist, you know that their their tool is physical, right? They're working on the physical side um, in a therapeutic framework. And occupational therapy, we're not career coaches, although it sounds like that. What we are doing is supporting people towards their occupations, towards the things that they do in their daily life. So for in an adult context, like in a hospital setting, this might be somebody who's just had a stroke and we're working with them to get back to being able to drive. But with children, we're working on the occupations that are involved in the life of a child, which is play, which is interacting with their caregiver. As they get older, this becomes more academic and sport and social focused. But we're really supporting all of these, that scaffolding, that developmental scaffolding in order to support them to get to the point that they can access the environments and the things that they want to be able to do. Well, that thank you for that explanation. That is very helpful. And you're, you're right. I think the confusion is maybe just the term initially, uh, that it is confused with uh, work and things like that. So great. I mean, this is integral then to just functioning sometimes at a fundamental level, but and then all the way up into more complex things. Yeah. That covers quite a a broad range. So how would you describe how you work with your patients? Like if you were telling somebody who's brand new to understanding occupational therapy, what is it that you're doing with a child or the family? Yeah, well, this really depends on the child and what their need is and why why they are seeing occupational therapists specifically. I mean, we often get confused for play therapists, right? But play therapy is its own profession within itself. But we do use play as one of our primary tools as pediatric occupational therapists, at least, um, in terms of reaching if our goal is, say, towards like developmental aspects, uh, maybe something muscular, we'll be using play like really integrally in there to reach those goals. But a lot of the time we're working on just really functional things as well, like brushing teeth or learning. Like I remember once I worked with a boy who was school age and one of the big goals for the year was that he would be able to catch the bus home by himself Mm -hmm. at that age group. So we're really working very holistically depending on what the reason for referral is. So often we are really working very closely with educators and within those uh, educational frameworks or within healthcare frameworks, so together with doctors Mm. and medical staff. But then we're also really, because when we look at our children, we actually, we don't just see them as like these insular single figures. We see them as like what I like, technically we call them like dyads or triads, but I like to call them like peas in a pod. Mm -hmm. We see them really integrally with their families. So any decision that's being made, any goals that are being set, and also the methods in terms of how we reach those goals are always coming together with the families. And every family is so individual. Uh, The way that those goals can be reached is really going to be individual according to the context and to the family's wishes. Sure. Are you primarily getting referrals or people being referred to you through medical systems or medical providers? Or do you also finding that people are seeking out your services just independently? Yeah, well, I have quite a unique experience in that I've lived in different countries and changed contexts in terms of the way that pediatric occupational therapy is practiced. 
Um, so I've worked within hospital settings where it's, you know, primarily referral from a, a medical personnel. I've worked also within private practice settings, which is then again, often it's coming from all education or from medical staff mm. that you're getting those referrals. But then my deep love, like the place that I really love working is within preschool settings mm. and school settings and daycare settings where we're, we're coming really alongside also the education staff. I was curious how people get connected to you. I'm thinking in part of, let's say people who are listening right now, there for sure are people who are already being supported by an occupational therapist for their child's development. But if somebody is hearing uh, what we're talking about today and is thinking that they or their child might need the support, how would they even go about it, I guess, in our mm. in our system here in, in the U.S., maybe talking to their doctor? Yeah, pediatricians are always like the great place to start, especially if it's for your child. But I know for early intervention, so for this like young group of children, you can also directly refer yourself um, or just go through your early intervention system of your state for any kind of assessment that you would, even if it's something that your pediatrician hasn't referred to, it's something that a parent is curious about, they can also go through that route. Fantastic. So how is it that you are supporting the family in this process as well as like, let's say if the child is your primary client? Mm, absolutely. Well, I think the occupation of the thing that we do of being parents is such a like a huge focus in these years, especially with young children, right? It's like everything else kind of takes a backseat to this big job that we're doing of parenting because it is very time consuming, very money consuming, very emotionally right. consuming. Yep. So definitely the more we can support children and whatever's going on with them, it also like it has this kind of spin-off effect within the family as well. But how I really got to this topic, like what we're talking about today, sensory processing or sensory overwhelm for parents is because I became a parent myself. Mm -hmm. And just understanding this thing of what we do and how this affects who we are and really the integratedness, if that's a word, <laughs> the connectedness of the experience of like changing biology and how our bodies actually really influence what we can be doing and um, got me so interested in the experience of sensory overwhelm because I experienced it myself and I felt like I've worked with children for at that time over 10 years and I've been around crying and tantrums and all of it mm -hmm. and never felt this way in inside myself. Like this right. never affected me. This never impacted my occupations or the things that I do right. as much as it does right now. And why is that? So I started to get really, really curious about understanding more in terms of the biology of what is changing and then understanding the aspect of sensory processing and how that's all working together in the the step of motherhood or the process of becoming a mother. Right. This podcast is supported by Posh Peanut. Raising a family can be tough, as we know, and it can also be amazing and beautiful. Posh Peanut gets it, which is why they make beautiful, soft clothing that is tough enough to withstand all of the rough and tumble of childhood. And they have sizing for parents as well. You could even get matching clothing for the whole family. Made from viscose from bamboo, the clothes stretch with your kid as they grow and are four times stretchier than cotton. These clothes are made to last, loved by parents and approved by kids. Posh Peanut makes thoughtfully crafted, beautiful and stylish clothing for kids and families designed in-house 
From beautiful florals to your favorite brands such as Hot Wheels, Disney, Hello Kitty, and Barbie. It's also breathable and chemical-free, which means they're delicate on sensitive skin. So I got my Posh Peanut loungewear, and I've been putting it on, especially after my long client days, because I need the instant comfort and relaxation. It's one of the ways that I do my self-care, because the soft, stretchy fabric of the Posh Peanut loungewear is really comforting to me. Right now, Posh Peanut is offering our listeners 20% off your first order with promo code MIND. Go to poshpeanut.com slash mind and use promo code mind for 20% off your first order. That's poshpeanut.com slash mind, promo code mind. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for sharing that. It's always fascinating to me how people come to do what they do, but also once you're already in a specialty, becoming even more specialized within it. I just love when there's these intersections of nuanced understandings of things that are related, but not necessarily have always been put together. Maybe intuitively we understand it, but cognitively we're just still trying to figure it out. It just happens so much in new parenting and new parenthood. They're just, you know, this whole new world opens up and then you have to consider so much more in your own world while you're trying to understand the world of your child. And I want to understand a little bit more about what you mean by sensory overload. How would you describe that? Yeah. Okay. Well, let's first talk about sensory processing. What what does it really mean? I find often when I talk about sensory processing, people feel like it's a bit like woo, like it's a bit like out there. It's like something <laughs> that isn't science, right? Like that's often the response that I get. And I just want to make clear that that is as far from the truth as we can go. Sensory processing is one of our core abilities that our body does. And it's not something that is a mindset. It's something that is actually happening within our body. So what happens? Let's talk about the process of what is sensory processing. We experience something through our sensory systems. It goes into our brain, our brain interprets it and then tells us the correct response. Mm -hmm. So this is from everything from tasting to sight to hearing. But then there are also three other sensory processing, three areas of sensory processing that are a little bit less known, which is uh, vestibular, your proprioceptive system and also interoception. But before we get there, just understanding that sensory processing is basically the process of how your brain makes you able to function within the world. So we can't kind of take away sensory processing, right? It's like very integral to our, our basic biology. And it's not the same as the actual function of an organ. So we see because we have sight, because our eyes are able to see. But sensory processing is the thing that makes us understand that this is a a sight 
that is overwhelming to our bodies or just possibly scary. It's a lion running at you. So the sensory processing component isn't just the vision, but how the vision is interpreted and filtered in terms of like neural networking. So when we talk about sensory overload, what we're talking about really is a lot of sensory information coming in at once that is causing our nervous system to feel overloaded, to feel overwhelmed and to push us into a fight or flight or freeze mechanism. So often when we talk about this, people relate it, there's a, because part of the autistic diagnosis is very linked with sensory processing. People often think of it like that, like, oh, someone walks into a busy crowded shopping center and it's like a light switch goes off and they suddenly have a meltdown. But actually, while this is true, and this is one component of sensory overload or sensory uh, processing, this other component isn't a light switch. It's more like a cup that is just like constantly being filled and not emptied. So if you think about the life of a parent, we are, you know, having a lot more clutter on the floor Mm -hmm. than normal, whether it's toys or whether it's that baby stage where suddenly there's cots and there's all these things that you didn't have in your home before. We are having a lot more noise in terms of whether it's crying or children that are kicking balls around and giggling and running and all of that. There's a lot more movement happening. So our bodies are also getting our vestibular senses. Really, our heads are moving around a lot, which is impacting those like little follicles inside of your ears, which is telling your body where it is in space. That's your vestibular sense. So all of our our sensory areas are just being stimulated a lot. And because of the nature of parenting, there also isn't a lot of naturally built in filters that are kind of emptying out Mm -hmm. our sensory cup, which brings us back to like that calm, alert, rested state. And so it's kind of like that experience of being a cup that is just like on the like tip of being full and just always kind of spilling over a little bit. That's how I like to think of sensory overload in this context of parenting. Yeah, that's a fantastic explanation. Thank you so much for that. I like the way you describe things and explain things. It really makes it so easy to to understand and kind of apply. And you had mentioned the vestibular and then there were two other types of processing. If you can go into a little bit kind of like the concrete yeah. of what those are as well. So the second one, there was vestibular and then proprioceptive. So proprioceptive is basically the sensation that we get from our muscles and joints when they experience resistance. So like if I hit a ball, I know that I hit the ball and how hard I hit the ball because of my proprioceptive sense. And um, that's like filtering through the muscles. So if you think about someone that doesn't have um, or struggles in terms of their proprioceptive sense, it can almost feel like they are covered in bubble wrap and like they're not really sure where their body is, right? Mm-hmm. It's like hard to sense if they're stepping too hard or too soft. Mm-hmm. I actually had a bit of this when I was a kid and I remember my tennis teacher always being like, you don't need to hit so hard because <laughs> <laughs> they just whack that ball. But that's part of our proprioceptive sense. And then the other one is interoception. So this is basically, it's one of the sensory areas that is still really emerging in terms of research Mm. and our understanding of it, but it's basically our internal awareness of what is going on inside of our bodies. Mm. So the experience of feeling hungry, needing the toilet, knowing if you're hot or cold, uh, that would fall into interoception. Okay. And then vestibular, you were describing as this is more auditory 
So it's different to auditory, but it also involves our, our ears. So it's basically when your head moves, there's little like hair follicles that are inside yes. of your ears that tell your body where it is in space. Mm-hmm. So this one, I think, is a really one that we forget about. But really, as new parents, when you're like bending up and down, up and down, doing all that bending, you are really activating your vestibular sense. And we can go into this a little bit more just now, but there are ways that we can activate these systems. It's actually like emptying that cup. It's like mm-hmm. actually very, um, our bodies are just designed in the most incredible way that these things that can alert us can actually also relax us and bring us down. So vestibular is one of those and um, that it actually has a huge potential for calming our nervous systems. But if we are doing like rigid kind of movements, that it actually alerts us more and keeps you in that like cupful on the brink of getting into fight and flight or freeze. Sure. Great. Thank you for that. And the sensory processing that you mentioned before, I heard and agree with what you're saying that a lot of people associate it with a diagnosis of autism. But, and I should say there are other experiences or conditions or diagnoses that where the sensory processing is impacted as well. There's a a full line of just like, we are always sensory processing, whether there's like a diagnosis or a functional challenge or not, it's there. And so you don't have to necessarily fit some diagnostic criteria to be impacted. And certainly if there is already something that you have that have been dealing with or living with in your life that has impacted your capacity for sensory processing, and then you add all of this new stuff on top of it, that's just going to be so much harder. Absolutely. Yeah. I like to think of it like one of the models that we use in occupational therapy is uh, the person, the environment and the occupation, like three interlocking circles. So if you look at the person, just the person itself, we all kind of have, you don't have to be sensitive across every single area of your sensory makeup, your sensory profile. You can have one slight sensitivity or one area where you're a little bit sensitive. And often as adults, we have these and we just sail through them because we we've learned how to change our environment so that these things don't bother us. One of the examples that I always give is like my husband, he can reverse the car while playing music and having a conversation. This for me is like, it's <laughs> no go, no go. Yeah. It's like I'm reversing, everything must be silent <laughs> yes. and no one moves. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so, But on the other hand, he doesn't like to go to the beach. He doesn't like the feeling of sound on his feet, right? So, and sure. we all have these smart things. Like somebody likes cucumbers, somebody doesn't like tomatoes. Like they mm-hmm. all, we all have slight tweaks or areas where we're more sensitive or areas where we're more seeking mm-hmm. and different kinds of uh, stimulation. That's our person. That's our actual physical makeup. Right. Then we have the environment and we may find ourselves in environments that are very low stimulation environments like offices are often like this whereas something like a school might be a high stimulation environment and so the environment plays into how everything is experienced but then there's also the thing of what what we are actually doing so you you know if you look at someone who's trying to do like a job that has huge risk in that job and they're doing it under time pressure it feels very far removed from saying that this is sensory processing but the experience in the central nervous system may be the same mm. like that experience of being under high pressure and having a huge time limit of the occupation of the thing that you're doing could easily push you into fight and flight right so mm. all of these things are interlocking and in especially these newborn ed, like time 
they kind of all all combine in a little bit of a chaotic way because our biology has changed, especially if you are the mother, the person that birthed the baby, there is a lot that is going on biologically within your yeah. body. Yeah. But also even for fathers, even for caregivers that are with the babies, there is also changes that are happening within their biology. So the biology is, you know, forcing you to be more responsive to the baby, to like heighten your sensory abilities. And then our environment is very different. Like we talked about, there's more clutter, there's more visual stimulation, and there's a lot more going on in terms of sound in the environment. And then the occupation, the thing that we have to be doing is also huge risk, like not... Risk is maybe the wrong word, but, you know, it's a very important job. Keeping a little child alive is a hugely important job. And we also have within that all of our expectations on ourselves and the things that we thought it would be like and and all of that. So it all kind of combines into this kind of uh, very can feel chaotic and can feel overwhelming and overstimulating. And that's what a lot of parents are feeling and not really knowing where to put the pin of what is this actually about? Like, is this just about my feelings? Is this just about the clutter? Is this just about the actual raising the baby? Mm -hmm. And kind of circling between these things without finding a lot of solutions um, or solutions that stick. Mm -hmm. And I think that when we can really look at like the whole person, the person, the occupation, the environment, and bring them together also within the, the context of sensory processing and sensory overload. Right. I think that we we just can find solutions that feel like they stick a little bit more, like there's less blame on yes. people, ourselves, yes. uh, the things around us. Mm-hmm. And we can just like push more into understanding this new phase because on one hand, it changes a lot, right? Like some of those you there's an age where when you hear a baby cry, you won't start lactating because your body <laughs> is less sensitive to that thing. Your biology kind of filters back down as well. But the environment and the occupation, the thing of actually raising kids, although they grow, it still can feel much the same. Like my kids are now, I always get their ages wrong, but they are nearly five and nearly seven. And I still experience this thing of sensory overwhelm. And there's still a lot of noise, a lot of overstimulation. So some of these techniques and some of this understanding uh, just really helps me still, even if it was like most pertinent in those baby years. Absolutely. I think as you were, you mentioned something in there that made me think about just psychologically speaking, you know, since that's primarily where I'm sitting with people is understanding, you know, how what's happening for them as a result of all of these things. It the blame, I think that's what you said, the Mm -hmm. it's not understood like, oh, I'm, you know, overstimulated right now, necessarily, or I'm having overload, it's often more interpreted as there's something wrong with me. Why can't I handle this? And or if they're not already in that headspace, they it can result in feelings of intense anxiety, sometimes even like a ragey type of a feeling, just like you can't make the stimulation stop. And then it has this impact and this effect. So to your point about this, like I think interoceptive, a sensory i don't know the answer to this but like how much of that is like psychological input too that not only are you dealing with all of this input then you're dealing with what's happening to you internally you physiologically what's happening but then your own thought process is potentially adding to this overwhelm and it's just a recipe for just billowing 
you know, more and more overload. Absolutely. You know, often when like if we take it away from like the motherhood aspect of this and look at it in terms of we talked about like autistic children before, I often hear from families that when their children were little, they focused on sensory processing, but then they learned that somehow that switched over to emotional regulation. So it was first sensory regulation and then it switched over to more of an emotional thing and then it kind of switches back and forth. So maybe at one point when the child was younger, they gagged on certain food and that developed into an emotional reaction to food, Mm -hmm. even when the gag reflex had stopped and how these two kind of always flick flack between each Mm -hmm. other. Mm -hmm. But actually, if you really like zoom out in terms of understanding human makeup, we have our central nervous system. You know, we learn all of these systems in school. We learn about our veins and our blood system. We learn about like our nerves, actual like nerves on our skin, but we never learn about the central nervous system. And it's such a big one, right? Because it's this like the emotional side and the sensory side, they're always working together. They're always alongside each other. And the result of like too much on both of these things can be that fight or flight or freeze or like you're saying as well, like a a kind of a pathway of anxiety that can be like traded into. So I definitely agree with this. They like, they are always working together and um, these two sides. And I don't know that we need to always separate them either. Like say, this is only about this or this right. is only about this, right. but kind of look at them on the, for this situation for right now, what is going to be the best support for me? And it might be talk and it might be, something like drinking a cold glass of water, mm. right? So like really trying to understand for each person individually where they are at that moment, like what's going to be the best thing to help right now. And definitely these things can support each other. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask-Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone, and it can feel so much better. 
If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. So you've mentioned a couple of times as we've been talking that there are solutions and you just listed a couple of them, potential ways to help um, filter out that cup a bit. Can you talk a little bit more about the tools that you're suggesting? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the ways that I like to look at this is in terms of that like really full cup, right? We often, we only like see the full cup when it's already overflowing. And when we end up being in the state that we're just like, I want to be in a cold, dark room, holding my ears and just rocking myself. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I see you laughing because we can all relate mm-hmm. to this on some point, you know, whether it's yeah. that or like just trying to have an extended bathroom break to just bring ourselves back down. And before we get to that stage is where we actually need to be like really checking in with ourselves. I think in one of the some of the ways that we see people like naturally responding to this, especially in like this day and age, are actually things that do the opposite of taking away that stimulation. They actually give you more stimulation. Mm -hmm. So for example, doom scrolling on your phone, it it actually, if you think about that, it's like, again, it gives you all of this blue light. It's overstimulating you. It's bringing in a lot of emotional things because you're looking at everybody else's highlight reel. It's actually like the worst thing that we can do, but often it's just like that first thing that, easy thing that we can pull to to try and just have a moment and mm-hmm. um, what I always encourage people to do is like think about this a little bit proactively if you can what is the thing that's gonna for you that really full cup of all that bending down picking up all that noise all that clutter all that crying what is the thing that's gonna help you and often people already have something like I know that when my house is clean I just feel better and there's some people that say it doesn't really make that much of a difference to me whether it's clean or not right? Because we're Mm -hmm. all different and that's okay. What's going to work for somebody else isn't necessarily going to work for you. But in order to like empty that cup, a lot of the things that we would think of as like traditional self-care and like, I sometimes struggle with the term of self-care because I know like for me, going to get my nails done is not, doesn't feel like care. Like it doesn't feel good at all. And that's often like just the thing that people like immediately go to, like some kind of spa association, but like that real self-care, right? That Mm -hmm. real self-care of like, taking care of your body, taking care of what you put into your body, what you're eating, that you're drinking enough, all of that kind of thing. Often those things that are immediately on our list for self-care actually have a huge sensory component as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you think about walking or getting a little bit of exercise, as your feet are like hitting that pavement, there's proprioceptive stimulation coming in. You're walking in a rhythmical way, which is activating your vestibular sense. And like we said, like jarring movement overstimulates, but actually rhythmic movement is very like uh, relaxing and kind of I, I like to think of like a little valve on the side of that really full cup it opens that valve and lets some of that overstimulation out and um, so if we go in that vein again of like rhythmical movement things like being on a swing and um, mm-hmm. not necessarily doing like uh, H, like hit exercises or like oh, right. things that are very jarring kind of movement but like rhythmical movement is really really good and similarly if you think about like for me something that would be self-care is like a long bath or a nice warm shower that water touching your skin again it's like a soft and soothing and often very rhythmical whether it's a a flow of water or a shower and that rhythmical movement is again just like providing your body with that opening that valve to let things out Mm -hmm. but there are some things that we can also do within the moment 
So whatever you had on your like self-care list, don't get rid of that. Keep that on the list. That's something that we want to be pulling on and giving ourselves more motivation to actually do these things. This is not being selfish. Going for a walk if you need to uh, is a really, really good thing if you can build that into your life. Mm -hmm. But if you are in that moment and you feel like you need to be in that cold, dark room, I'm going to give you just a couple of ideas of things that you can do there as well. So the main one, it's so simple, is stand outside. When we're inside, our voice is bouncing off of the walls. It's providing extra stimulation in our ears. When we are inside, we also have often uh, fluorescent lighting or lighting that is stimulating our eyes in a different way. Whereas when we are outside, we have like open, wide open spaces that also it's very different in the visual stimulation. And yes. um, the sound that we are experiencing is very different. Natural light also has a more soothing effect. And like extra bonus now that we're heading towards the end of the year, if there's a little bit of a, like a, a coolness or crispness in the air, I'm not talking about like snow and freezing weather, but just a bit of crispness <laughs> mm-hmm. actually is very, very stimu- uh, calming for our bodies as well. Mm-hmm. So as much as is possible, whether it's this thing of like you're holding your baby and you're wanting them to go to sleep and they are crying, or it's just a point in the day where you just need a bit of air, just stepping outside for a few minutes can really, really be helpful. Another thing that I I think we often forget about is that just like babies, when your baby is crying, what's the first thing that you do? You give them a nurse them, you breastfeed them, or you give them a bottle or you give them a pacifier or something like that. And one of the reasons is because sensory components of our mouth can be very calming for us. Mm -hmm. So just like you would give your baby to nurse them or to give them a bottle, give yourself some water, some cold water specifically can be very calming or even something hot, something that you're like sipping on or sipping Mm -hmm. bottle Mm -hmm. that relaxes, it opens up that valve and kind of relaxes our sensory systems. And then also things like having crunchy food. Like I know um, often we have this thing where there's a point in the day where we know we're like uh, teetering at the end. For me right now, it's like that just before bedtime time. But I remember at one stage it was like five o'clock on the dot every single day. And if you can for yourself, like make sure that you've thought about, can I make myself something like a, a good cup of tea to drink at that time? Or can I give myself a crunchy snack? Crunchy snacks also as you are like chewing, that's activating your proprioceptive system within your mouth again, which is again, uh, just like opening up that valve and just actually helping you to bring yourself down. So I think those are the main ideas that I wanted to share today. I do have a quiz that people can check out that gives them a little bit more of an idea of their own individual sensory makeup and what are maybe the areas that are like most triggering for them. But the main thing that I want to say is that, you know, this this phase, especially with newborns, it is sensory overwhelming. It it isn't something that you're making up. Right. Um, it isn't something that only you are experiencing. Of course, each of us might experience it at a higher or lower degree, but it really is a very big season of a lot of stimulation. Um, so just having grace for yourself within that as well. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you for that. What I think is so important about what you're describing is, I mean, obviously that there are things you can do. There are sort of interventions, if you will, that even can let out just a little bit. But the understanding in some ways, the how and the why those things are helpful brings a different depth to like, oh, I'm just going to have a drink of water. I think it allows for more I guess, intentionality into to doing those things. Like you have a purpose for it 
and the effect is known. It's not just like, I'm just going to throw something at the wall and see what works. Although please do that. It's like, find out what works about going outside. There's a purpose having that drink of water. There's a purpose. And I think for me anyways, as I'm hearing it and thinking about, you know, doing that for myself, that brings this whole other depth to it. It's just not this little thing. It's, it's an impactful thing. Mm. You know, I often bring this back to kids in terms of movement. Like, I don't know about everybody else who's listening as children, but my kids, if they don't move enough, like we know about it, right? Yeah. You experience it full throttle in the house. Yeah. So it is something that we, when they were younger and at home with me, I made sure that we got out and we moved like come rain or shine, we had to move. It was imperative. And the thing is that we also actually as adults have biological movement needs. Yeah, it's so easy to forget when you are so focused on caring for someone else. But we have like real needs that need to be taken care of as well. So I think that when we understand that this, like just like getting your kid out the door, if you know that they need to move, you know that you're going to pay for it if you don't do it. So you're willing to go through like the agony of getting out the door. And sometimes it's that as well for us. We just need to like give ourselves enough motivation to just start the motor, right? Like if it's going for a walk, just start the motor, even if there's a bit of resistance, like just getting getting that step out and knowing that this, this like small drops of caring for ourselves they have a big pool at the end. It's not just a glass of water or a, a small walk. It's like that dripping into this thing of caring for ourselves. Absolutely. So you mentioned before that you have a quiz, you have a way for people to understand a little bit more deeply what's going on for them. Can you talk a little bit about that and how they can find it? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the biggest steps is also just really understanding what is it for me that not, it's not like this gray fuzz of everything is overwhelming, but is it specifically in an area of sensory development, uh, not development? <laughs> I always say development because of children, but mm-hmm. area of sensory processing mm-hmm. that I could be supporting more. So we have a quiz. I think we'll have it linked below. People can come and do it. It's just a couple of questions. And then it gives you some follow-up and information about that specific area and what can support, like if you are like me, an auditory person, that auditory overwhelm is really the place that you land. There are specific things in terms of that that can be really helpful. But for people that are overwhelmed more in terms of visual, there are different techniques that might work better for you. So you are more than welcome to come and do that quiz and... Yeah, find some help in the results, I hope. Thank you so much for sharing this. I really love the how you are providing a deeper understanding to the why things are overstimulating and that there's a reason. It's just so empowering, I think, for people to have this information and then a direction what to do about it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And it's been a pleasure having this conversation. Thank you so much for being here. You can get connected with Holly at otholly.com or on Instagram, ot underscore holly. And if you'd like to understand more about how you are overstimulated, you can definitely check out the quiz that she offers. Share this episode with any parent who might be overstimulated by this transition into parenting and parenthood. And also go to wellmindperinatal.com slash courses where you can find the courses that I offer that can help you understand a bit more about what might be happening for you in the early postpartum. I appreciate you for being with us. Until next time. 
Please find the Mom and Mind podcast on momandmind.com or wellmindperinatal.com, where you can also find access to my free online mini course that is specifically designed for people experiencing anxiety in the postpartum period. Or you can learn more about the three and a half hour self-paced course that I created just for managing postpartum stress. You can also connect with us on social media at Mom and Mind on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you for tuning in and learning more about perinatal mental health. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you've fallen into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a No Guilt Mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model. So that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt-free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Get Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows.